establishing connection to science night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another edition of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and with me, as always, is Steffi. Hey. And Jason. Hello. Tonight, we're talking about a very scary Barbie and some memorable nanowires. In the second half, we have some thoughts on flexible minds. There's a lot to do, so let's get to it. Our first story may seem like a replay of a past episode. A star is getting pulled into a supermassive black hole and being shredded in a process that we had a lot of fun with before called spaghettification. The difference is this one is called Scary Barbie. And it's also like a thousand times more energetic, meaning it's currently one of the brightest things in the sky. It's been doing this for two years, way longer than other astronomical events of this magnitude, which usually lasts between weeks to a month. And again, it's called Scary Barbie. So what do we think about this like not so dreamy house? Oh, that was well done. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That was a good one. Yeah, that's right. I also l- love the name, obviously. If a supermassive black hole isn't getting pulled into a, it isn't called Scary Par- Barbie, but getting pulled into a, a pulling in a sun, would we even talk about it? So is this Scary Barbie just the newest Spice Girl sponsored by Mattel? Or is it the newest, uh, what was, what was the Aqua? Aqua. <laughs> something like that i did a cheerleading routine to that in high school really you're talking about the barbie girl song yes yes oh yes we did <laughs> wow okay so it's pretty amazing that they assign you know random numerical and al- alphabetical symbols to these supernova and star names and then out of this one comes barbie like if you look at the actual name it is it's pretty clever so So, i'm very pleased with the name (laughs) the the alphanumeric name is z t f two zero a b r b e i e assigned to uh reference its frightening power all all you alphanumeric heads out there are going to tell me how that references its its frightening power but that's why i said that's that is a direct quote it's true yeah and, uh, you know, the name Barbie is in there, right? And they had to go yeah. with Barbie, not Arby's, because mm-hmm. all Arby's are scary. And this one, <laughs> yeah. not all Barbies are scary. Well, and they have famously, they have the meat and this is talking about spaghetti. So I don't think, I don't think yeah. the link is there. Right. Yeah. We yeah. have the pastas. Yeah, it doesn't work. Okay. Should we talk about like a supernova? Because these are just amazing. That's what, what's the point, right? I mean, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so they're one of the most luminescent objects in the sky because what they're doing is they're shredding stars. So, a supernova, it's basically a really powerful luminous explosion of a star, and it occurs during the last stages of a massive star when a white dwarf is triggered into a runaway nuclear fusion episode (laughs) i mean it's just fascinating okay like beyond everything going back to fusion obviously and plasmas when you think about like what's happening inside of these supernovas and they have this pressure drop which then triggers gravity to take over and like compress it and then it can start shredding things that's just amazing 
When right. you can collapse a star in seconds, that collapsing of the star in seconds, that's what comes up with it. That's what triggers that supernova. It's crazy so, though, because that thing burns so bright, right? Scary Barbie is burning so much brighter than anything else. And yeah. I think I read that it was, that it happened like 7 billion light years away or something like that, yeah. right? Yeah. And so that's a long time, right? Or long distance rather. That was a big mistake, but long distance is what I meant to say. Um, which means that, you know, it takes a long time for that light to get to us. It's been burning for a while, right? But it happened in seconds. Yeah. It's amazing. We said it in the last episode, and this story just makes me stand by it. It is like one of the most metal things in science, right? It that, is. That a supermassive black hole is just like shredding a star, like a yeah. like a Steve Vai guitar solo. Yeah, that's why they call it spaghettifies, because you're just shredding these stars into long strings of plasma, noodle-like shapes. And then these noodle shapes of hot plasma are accelerating really, really fast around these black holes. And that's what's spinning out those jets of energy and matter producing that light that you see. So just like the combination of like beautiful violence. I just love it. So it's a lot more. So when I think of shredding, right? Like the first thing I thought of was, you know, the effects that you saw like in the Avengers movies, right? When Thanos snaps his fingers, right? And suddenly, boom, people start to just disintegrate, right? Mm -hmm. That was the first thing. Mm -hmm. But this is way more powerful than that. It's like if that happened and each one of those pixels that was moving away, like exploded at the same time, right? And generated all this energy. Like I I just cannot put my mind around how, how this happens. Do you have any insight there, Steffi? Like how can you wrap your mind around this? Like I, I've studied for a long, long time, deep time. Yeah. And I know that that's a hard thing yeah. for some people to understand, right? Like what's the difference between a thousand years ago or 50,000 years ago or 50 million years ago or 4.6 billion years ago. Those are hard things to understand. Mm-hmm. I, I can understand those. I cannot understand this. How do I put my mind around this? So part of me works in the mathematical sense, right? Where I like you can see the equations and you're, yeah, you can see how it happens on paper, right? And through the um, simulations and things like that. But then when you're extrapolating it to nature, because like you get predictions from these equations that predict these extreme events, mm-hmm. and then we actually can observe them with our telescopes, right? And like I can go in the lab and we have diagnostics to like get these extreme temperatures and even still you're like wow cuz deep inside like when it goes into supernova you're fusing carbon. Like I'm used to fusing like hydrogen which only happens like on earth in like 100 200 million degrees, but the pressures and like densities and temperatures you need to fuse carbon is just like mind-blowing. Wow. And then right. you're like we wouldn't be here without that. So we are living examples of it. Because the temperatures and pressures to form carbon into diamonds is still mind-blowing. And that happens right. right here. And we can do that in a laboratory. You know what I mean? And that's the crystalline structure, right? That's not fusing the nuclei. Exactly. Right. So it's I can't even get my mind around that. Yeah, that's nuts. So when you were describing that, it reminded me of the way that Brian Green, the scientist who is behind string theory, describes string theory. And um, it was masterful, Steffi. I really appreciated that, right? String theory is another one of those things that's just so fascinating. Right. And it's all about the vibration of the universe, right? And uh, like you can, again, he talks about all of these, you know, you can see these equations and you can make predictions. And then when you go and you observe, you know, the the results of the experiment and it it matches the predictions to like seven decimal places. That's crazy, right? Right. It's wild. I can't even imagine. 
Or, That's why they don't. I don't do computational and uh, <laughs> computational biology for a reason. I like to do. I like to do both the computational side and the and the experimental because I do like to mesh the two because I think that's super important. Super powerful, like a scary Barbie. <laughs> like a scary Barbie. I. It's just fascinating. I mean, what you're saying, Steffi, is just reminding us. It's reminding me that we are all stardust, right? Yeah, we are golden. I mean, yes. Right. I can't believe I want Steve Vai and not Eddie Van Halen. What am I thinking? I know. I mean, Steve Vai does shred. I agree. But if you're talking, really, if we're talking shredding, right? like when you're talking about metal, I don't think Steve Vai fits in that, right? If you're talking about no. shredding, we got to be talking yeah. about like Dave Mustaine. Are we having a shredder episode? We should. Yes. Okay. We can get all different aspects of shredding. Oh my God, Steph, you're a gosh dang genius. I don't even have to bleep that. Mail well, that to ourselves. You, you might want to bleep that just because it was kind of embarrassing. <laughs> I'm going to keep it in. But hey, hey, all you other, all you other science pod- podcasts are listening to us. Don't steal this. If I see, if I see Luxi come out with like, hey, this is the science of real fancy guitars, I'm going to be real angry. Me too, but I'm a totally high five Luxi first. Then I'll be angry. Sure. Yeah. Whatever. And if you're a scientist that science, you know, you do a lot of shredding. Just you know, message us. Also, Luxi, if you want to like fly us out to to Greece to collab, just you know, send me an email. Let's go to Athens, guys. Okay, I'm up for it. Just like weird astronomical phenomena, we also talk a lot about things that can be implemented by our future overlords, the Xenobots, to quicken the impending downfall of humanity. This time, a team from Sydney taught a network of nanowires to act like a human brain, even created short and long-term system memory. Basically, researchers created a circuit, guided the nanowires with a series of impulses, and found that the wire remembered the circuit after about seven repetitions. And over time, with enough reinforcement, made a permanent connection, which is kind of how the brain works. So now we have a nano machine brain, but they still never stop to ask if they should. I love that quote. I use it so many times in serious in like serious meetings and then like there'll be that one person that gets the reference and they'll just lose it and no one knows what's happening. People at the Luxi podcast are like losing their minds after uh, over that reference. I know they're the cool ones, right? They're auto downloaders. So, let's talk about these nano wires, right? I find it fascinating. Yeah, it's first of all, it's awesome that they're able to do this. I think that there are a lot of implications for having machine learning that can do this, um, especially in the age of AI now, where where we might be able to have some real human-like artificial intelligence instead of completely artificial intelligence. I worry about where that's going to take us, but that's a different that's a different episode altogether. It's a movie called Megan. Right? Yes, it is. <laughs> but here's the thing that I'm like baffles me, and that is that. We don't understand still how the brain works very well. And, you know, we have a a better idea than we did. Yet, even the simplest modeling of circuitry here, and maybe that's not fair to call it simple because it's not simple, but it is a simple schematic compared to the neural networks in the brain. They're able to replicate human like thinking. And that to me is crazy. Because it's so much more complex than this model, yet this model got it pretty well, you know? Well, at least like the first steps, right? From this, maybe you do get something that actually works more like the human brain where you have all these impulses from everywhere and it's like 
a constantly dynamic and evolving situation. And then that's like super scary. The key here though, is that this is modeling behavior that happens in the prefrontal cortex, right? This is, um, and that's, you know, that's one of the things that primates especially have developed quite a bit compared to other species. So this is more human-like thinking than say, um, what you would find in a crocodile, right? Or in a shark or in a mouse. But some of the decision-making that that they're modeling here still has to happen with these other animals. And so my question is whether or not we're accurately saying that this is human-like thinking or whether this is just how a brain has evolved to work at the very sure. basic level and the human aspect of it, the expansion of the prefrontal cortex, right? That is going to involve a lot more complicated circuitry. And maybe this doesn't model that very well, even mm-hmm. though uh, maybe the basic human thinking pattern is just like what happens in other species. Yeah, I think starting here in the early steps and then seeing where it goes from there, that's pretty fascinating to just make it to this where they they show the short-term and long-term memory difference too, right? When they did these experiments. I'm thinking too, just like kind of reversing and using this uh, using this like mechanical experiment to kind of teach the basics of neuroscience yeah. to people too, right? Yeah, um, that's a great point. Yeah, I'm gonna like air out my my uh, downfalls here. Like, neurophobia is something that lives and burns bright in my heart. I love teaching anatomy in my anatomy lab. When we get to neuro, I do just kind of turn my lights on and hide in my office until the class is over. I gave it the old college try. I'm trying to get there, but it is tough for me. And I think a lot of it is because you really can't visualize it that well. Um, you can try, but it's really tough for me to kind of like comprehend it. Comprehend I, I totally it. agree with you. Um, you know, I focused most of my career on teaching the gross anatomy of the brain. And there, you know, I don't teach neuroanatomy. I've never mm-hmm. actually taken a formal course in neuroanatomy. I, I learned it all on my own. But... There's a difference. There's a very big difference between neuroanatomy and neuroscience. Sure. And neuroscience is really what this is talking about. And unfortunately, that, to your point, James, is what neuroanatomy coursework has become to, in order to uh, meet the needs of the learners, right? It has become more of a neuroscience approach in the context of anatomy as opposed to a neuroanatomical approach in the context of neuroscience. Mm -hmm. And so, I say that because neuroanatomy is not an experimental discipline, right? It is a strict point and describe kind of discipline, right? right? Neuroanatomists are not trying to understand circuitry. They are trying to describe it in a manageable way so that people who are interested in how to um, understand that circuitry or even push that circuitry to change in some way have the tool set that they need to do that, right? And so I'm with you. I have neurophobia because it has moved so far afield from neuroanatomy into neuroscience that I am not equipped. As, even as a PhD in anatomy and as someone who has been teaching gross anatomy for over 20 years at the highest levels, right? Still, I have neurophobia too. Yeah. I mean, this, I mean, this is, fascinating is fascinating to me because I, I don't really know anatomy. What, what I, know, I know, I learned from you all. Okay. Oh, so boy. it's like foreign. I'm so sorry. To me. <laughs> but the out. fact that, no it's fine <laughs> um um but the fact that you know we can only learn so much from human brains 
that's like a scary thing to go in and manipulate a human brain and learn about things like that, right? Um, when you're trying to help people and understand. And the fact that you have this experiment now of nanowires that you can manipulate that and and you don't have to worry about like real life implications of people. Until that neural network decides that oh it has gosh. learned your behavior and yeah. now it controls you, right? And it's called Megan. But we're not there yet. So what? We have like three months. All right. Question, question, question for both of you. <laughs> Would you rather be overtaken by Xenobots or uh, subjected Shredded? to spaghettification? <laughs> spaghettification. I, I really need to see their policy standpoints. Like, where do they stand on the climate crisis? Yeah, it's fair. That's fair. Well, how much of the supernova can I see before I've spaghettified? Because I feel like even a brief second, if I get to see that before I'm like shredded and turned into a star versus like a slow and long lived. And is it like when the xenobots are taking me over, am I still conscious and aware? So here's the science communication moment. How long would it take for you to be shredded? And then how long would it take for the impulse from your senses to get to the part of the brain that is processing it? And is, is one time shorter than the other one? And that's, that's the real question. Uh, both of the time, talk. I can tell you right now, both of those times are, are um, longer yeah. than the time it took me to realize I could not answer that question. Right. right. <laughs> I'm just glad we're talking about it. I'm, I'm just glad someone's <laughs> finally talking about it. Well, how about we move from these uh, pesky nano brains and talk about some human brains? But first, a message from a podcast that I think you'll enjoy. Hello, Science Night listeners. My name is Mark, and I host the Podfulness Podcast. Podfulness is where you go when you want to find new podcasts to add into your rotation. Each week, I bring on a guest who talks about their favorite show and why they love it. Plus, we end each episode with some fun and games. Episodes are half as long as most other podcasts, but twice as joyful. If you're looking for podcast recommendations from podcast superfans, give us a listen. Just search for Podfulness on your favorite streaming platform. Podfulness. Welcome back. In the first half, we talked about a nanowire brain, but now we're going to move on to humans and... We talked about some neurosciencey jargony type things like prefrontal cortex and I guess we use the word human. So let's let's explain them a little bit. But first the thing you need to know is our world is constantly changing. But you never really stop to think about how your brain learns new ways of doing something to cope with this change. A team at UCSF recently looked into this phenomena using mice, so it's part of my nightmare scenario. They found that the presence of changes in special cells called inhibitory neurons blocked unneeded reminders from moving between the left and the right prefrontal cortex, which is basically the part of the brain that's like right above our eyes. And it's involved with something called executive function, which means it helps us make decisions and stuff like that. And it also deals with new information relating to the changing environment. So why don't we talk about these flexible brains and how the flexible mind is better able to cope with a changing environment. And that is not a quote, but I think they should use it. I agree with you. I just think of like, okay, I'm going to use Battlestar as an example. Do it. Do it. So 
She can navigate. Battlestar, if you don't know, is a dog. Okay. A Shetland sheep dog that lives with me. She is fascinating because she can navigate at high speed a dog agility course where I'm directing her. So she, And they're always changing. Um, and so she's adapting to that. But then we go on a walk and there's a stump where a stump wasn't before. Mm-hmm, and she's just mm-hmm. stopping and barking. I get it. And, and her prefrontal cortex is not as well developed as um, the prefrontal cortex in a human, for example, right? So here we yeah. are back to this discussion about whether these the circuitry was modeling, you know, like vertebrate or mammalian behavior, yeah. not necessarily executive function in a human versus a human, right? And so to your point, Steffi, right? Um, my I have two teenage children right now. And they don't have well-developed prefrontal cortex. They also stop in front of stumps all the time. Exactly. They stop. And, and like when some when there is something put in their way that like they were not ready to navigate or negotiate, yeah. like it drives them crazy, right? And they cannot figure it out. And they lose all ability to self-regulate emotion and all sorts of stuff, right? And so, you know, I love my kids, but I also love seeing science happen. So I go out of my way to put yeah. those things, the stumbling blocks in front of them just to see how they react, right? Um, and I'm sure I'm sure that uh, I am not as bad as Margaret Mead was. So I just want to be clear. Yeah. I was going <laughs> to say, not, uh, I'm not scarring my children. I am just entertaining myself. And helping them learn. When's the last time you took your IRB training, Jason? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, it's interesting because, uh, you know, Steffi referred to uh, Battlestar as a dog that lives with her. And I talk about my kids as if I own them. <laughs> so they're, <laughs> instead of primates that live I, with you. I'm a caretaker of Battlestar, and she knows it. I want to talk about Battlestar, too, because, you know, what really made the difference is that the Vipers were way more flexible in their right? tactics. And <laughs> yeah. There's the deep cut, right? And and Starbuck was such a good leader. And Katie Sackhoff's an American treasure. There, I said it. We're talking about Battlestar Galactica, not Battlestar yes. Deem. Yeah. So bark we all. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not going to need a stinger for like three months. It's the dorkiest thing I have ever heard you say, Steph. That's on her competitive like dog agility harness. It says Battlestar on one side. And then the other side, it says it's embroidered in like glitter thread. So bark we all. So this article, huh? Yeah. I found this to be fascinating. What I found most fascinating was that, um, you know, they were able to train these mice to make decisions and then they could inhibit them from being able to realize changes later by changing um sort of the uh, approach to blocking some of that circuitry mm-hmm. and it um really made these mice like incapacitated to to make right. decisions here um wow. but what is interesting is that they were able to model through this um how when we need to make new decisions because we have new information uh the brain actually will will sort of tamp down that circuitry that that tells us to remember something mm-hmm. for enough time so that we can make the new connection, make that new decision, right? And then it imprints that instead, which I thought was fascinating. Right. That took me like a couple times to read through that section to really get it. Like, I don't know, for some reason, I just, I think of the brain working a little bit more elegantly, but really it's just like, the part of it is still screaming out, hey, you need to go this way. Hey, you need to go this way. But the brain's like, shut up for a second. Uh-huh. That's exactly what it was, yeah. right? It's yeah. wild. 
which I thought it was just me that has parts of my brain screaming at other parts of my brain to shut right. up. But I guess it's everyone, right? I mean, I thought really thought it was just me, like that my neuroses or whatever. But mm-hmm. nope, I guess that's the way executive function works. And the other thing I really liked is they are basically proving how neuroplasticity works by showing that they can map out this circuitry, inhibit it, and then show that in the behavior, but then also reestablish impulses experimentally in the same mouse and have them able to relearn the maze that they're going through. Yeah, it's it was amazing. That's it's amazing. right. This story it was just really wow. interesting. But uh, back to our point earlier, I the moment I started reading it, I started getting that neurophobia, right? Like, I should be understanding this way better than I do, and I don't. It took me a few times to get through it as well yeah. to figure out, you know, what are they actually saying? Now, part of that may have been that it wasn't actually written for the public very well, even though it was written in a very public venue. I think it was the conversation for this one, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yep. And so it should have been for a general audience, um, a general, you know, literate, educated audience but uh nevertheless but but still not an audience that has the same jargon that they do and yet Mm -hmm. it was full of Mm -hmm. jargon um and not good definitions of what that jargon was before it moved on and so that was a little frustrating to me as someone who's you know in a field adjacent to neuroscience i still had trouble understanding what it was they were saying also like what they were saying without saying and i wish maybe they were saying it a little bit louder is they were talking about changing worlds, right? They were saying like the people that are able to kind of use this ability are going to be able to navigate a changing world better. They showed it in mice. They made the jump and say like, it works this way in humans too. And what they weren't saying is that climate change is changing the world so fast I just keep thinking of like like jobs I've done where I was like a contractor in a national lab where I had to work on like five different projects as, at once. And that was straight out of grad school going from one to five. And you're thrown at like so many different directions and, and you have to be more flexible to what you're working on and adapting to. And that translated to like how I can do different jobs all at the same time. And people are like, how are you able to do this? And so, yeah, with climate change, we're going to have all these disasters kind of happening at once. And people are going to have to adapt to that. You know, that's a really good point. And I think it extends further than just the individual having to do all of these things at once. But the perspective that we need to be considering, how do we move forward on action as a result yeah. of climate change is going to involve so many different parts of a discussion that we don't really consider too much right now. Like mm-hmm. we we talk a lot on this podcast about the scientific implications of climate change and how that's affecting things like ocean temperatures and weather disasters and things like that. What we're not really considering here are the social science implications. Now we actually tend to discuss them a little bit more than other places do because James and I have a background in anthropology, and so we're already thinking that way a little bit. But decisions about how to move forward or how to deal with climate change need to take into consideration the basic science, but also the social science, because we're talking about people yep. needing to, you know, to respond to climate change, not just ecosystems. And right. people are part of ecosystems, but because we are so flexible. Right. I mean, we are the hallmark. One of the hallmarks of our species is our ability to adapt to any environment. 
that's what made has made us so successful uh, over our evolutionary history is that we can change and deal with changes put in front of us. That's amazing. But when we don't consider the social science implications, right? And when I say social social science implications, I'm talking about things like economics, right? Mm-hmm. Economics are important implications here for how do we deal with climate change, right? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that I agree 100% of the time with what economists say, but they're not wrong when they say that you know, if we have melting sea ice in the Arctic, that will open up new shipping routes that are going to actually connect communities differently than they have been connected before. And even though there may be problems elsewhere in the world, these problems or these new opportunities are something that should be um, should be considered when we talk about how do we account for our response to climate change, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think though the one thing that we can all agree on for sure is that uh, we're not responding fast enough to the changes that are happening too fast for us right now. And yeah. that, you know, regardless of who we are listening to when we make policy decisions to to deal with it or not deal with it, as is the case in many of uh, many of the situations, we're not doing it fast enough regardless. Yeah. And who we're getting input from. That reminds me of um, Steffi, your interview with Deviani Singh, where she was talking about a just transition, not just being like hyper-focused right. on net zero, but realizing that there are humans that are doing logging and oil drilling and and mining and that we need and and the fact that we can see that there is going to be an end to these industries it's not like it's not like something where we didn't realize that that something was going to collapse we know that there's going to be an end to these industries so while we're working on net zero and all of these things with scientific advancement we should also be having this social wing that is retraining and changing curricula and maybe not pushing people to these industries that are not going to have a very long lifespan in in the future that is coming so i yeah like for example here in my state of indiana right there's a push people really want electric vehicles right for good reasons but anybody who has an electric vehicle in the state of indiana and charges their electric vehicle in the state of indiana is doing it based on coal energy Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so we yeah. need to actually fix the front end of the problem as well as the back end of the problem. And we're not doing that. Yeah. Right. So your point is yeah, very, it's this, very good. It's this going back to the life cycle, like the whole impact of a system or an energy system that you're deploying. It's not just it's just not just impacting the people locally that are benefiting from, you know, electricity. It's it's those who are being harmed. In like the mining process and all the other processes too, and and the job implications too. Right. I mean, one of your senators just this week, Steffi, was arguing about climate change on the floor of the Senate. I don't know if you saw this, and um, no. it was in a hearing actually. Um, so it wasn't the floor of the Senate, but it was in one of the hearing rooms, and it was. Uh, I don't remember exactly what the context was, but he was berating someone who was showing that climate change was going to um, impact places closer to the equator much more than the state of wisconsin which actually was going to benefit from climate change because there will be fewer cold days and the argument was more people die from two cold days than two hot days right and so even though there will be more hot days closer to the equator that actually might end up really harming people the people of wisconsin were going to be better off because there were going to be fewer cold days and that was actually going to be more of a benefit 
than mm-hmm. the uh, than the detriment of sure. too many hot days closer to the equator, right? And it was just the most like garbage. backward, right, asinine kind of argument that you know such garbage. It was. It was. I could not. I could not even believe I was hearing this come from someone's mouth at the highest levels of government in 2023. Yeah. Well, and if you take the next step, you'll see that people who are also making that argument are very unlikely to let the people from the equatorial areas that are getting super affected into the area where there is a benefit, right? Like they're just not going to let that movement happen. Right, right. Because then other problems will be caused, right? So here we are talking about the people implications, the social science implications of climate change and being completely disregarded in favor of only the scientific, yet this time from the side that we don't typically see it coming from, right? Yeah. I've been doing some work in this, like looking at the socio-technical aspects of developing fusion energy and, you know, centering equity and environmental justice. And the pushback I get from people when they first hear about it, like I've gotten, that's not technical. I'm like, are you are you kidding me? Social science is science. Mm-hmm. Right. The communities you're impacting are real people with expertise that we are not listening to. How do you think we got to where we we got now? So I will say this, Steph, I am grateful that you are working in this area. I really am. And if there's anything that I can do, or I'm going to speak for James too, that James can do, like, let us know. We will help you because to me, that's the single greatest, most important aspect of response to climate change is is dealing with the people who are involved. I mean, and I, I I don't want to say it, but I'm kind of a celebrity right now. I mean, we should use this heat. (laughs) That's true. He is kind of a celebrity. Hearing the two of you talk and thinking about this neuroflexibility article, thinking about human evolution, hominid evolution, and what got us to this point. And knowing that in our lineage, there is the story of flexibility, adaptability, working together, social organizations that can get us as a species through very hard times. But we've developed to a point where it seems like we forget that we can work together to get through hard times. And we got, we got to remember that part too. Hey, there it's like, it's like if Lee Berger was also Mr. Rogers, right? That's, that's me right now. I'm putting on tennis shoes, getting stuck in a cave. I could just imagine Lee coming in to the cave, taking off his, his fedora and putting on his cardigan. Lee, I will make I will make a t-shirt for you if you send us that video that we can use for an intro. I know you're listening, Lee. <laughs> I guess maybe the last point I wanted to make is, Jason, you talked about how we're so focused on ecosystems and how, how ecosystems are affected by climate change and not social systems that are affected by climate change. And I think the thing that we all need to remember is that eventually the ecosystems are going to be there. We just might not be in them. That is the thing that we need to remember with climate change. Like the earth will be be fine. This is a drop in the bucket for the earth. But there is also a long lineage of species from our legacy that aren't around so much because of climate change. Right. I mean, there's no question that we have left an indelible mark on this planet, right? 
in terms of the number of species that we have caused to go extinct, whether because we have hunted them to extinction or because we have polluted their environment so much that they um, are now extinct or can't reproduce because of that, you know, we've left an indelible mark. Mm-hmm. But we, it's an indelible mark during our time period, right? I mean, it can get erased mm-hmm. in some way, right? With new evolution of species that will happen once we're long gone from this planet you know i think i've said it before we are really fortunate when you look at the at the longevity of mammalian species in the fossil record we are one of the long longer sustained species that's nuts to think so maybe we've overstayed our welcome right i mean we're clearly the earth is telling us that that we're not treating it well we should listen but we're not listening well enough yeah and so i hate to say it i hate to be that guy although i've been that guy for a long a lot of episodes right we are going to cause our own doom and so climate change is not just a threat to our way of life it's a threat to our existence on the planet we need to adapt we need to respond actually i don't think adapt adaptation is what we need to do at this point what we need to do we need to adapt our behaviors not our morphologies right not our anatomy not our way of surviving just our way of living I think what you're saying, Jason, is all of this has happened before. All of this will happen again. You've made it to the end of another episode, but don't worry. We got more coming your way, so make sure to follow us on social media. I'm on Twitter at James underscore read three, which that account has just become a Howie Roseman appreciation account. So go and uh, look at me saying how great the Eagles GM is doing. Steffi, where can everybody find you? I mean, I'm still on Twitter. It's Steffi Deem. I don't know what's going on in Twitter. Seems kind of questionable choice right now. Um, I'm still on Instagram, though, at Starshipping. Yeah, you can follow us all on Twitter as we watch, just like everything Elon Musk touches, the world burn down around him. Jason, where can we find you? You can also find me on Twitter, at least for now, at OregonJM. I have to tell you, um, Kathy Ireland, the supermodel, follows me on Twitter. And if I had told 12-year-old Jason that Kathy Ireland would follow him on Twitter, (laughs) it would be the most exciting thing in the world. And, uh, you know, 46-year-old Jason's just like, oh, another Twitter follower, which is really sad. What is your what is your life? <laughs> what what is the world when we have former supermodels that are following science communicators? And also like Kathy, I'm I'm really charming on Twitter. I want MC Hammer to follow me. Mm-hmm. He he's been following a lot of scientists, so Oh we can yet. we can the secret this. Just throw it out into the universe, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, MC Hammer, if you also want to follow the show, you can do that at Pod. Also, Kathy Island, you can follow the show, too. We'd love to have you on our Twitter. On our All Twitter. you got to do, Kathy, is click on my link. There's a link in my bio. There you go. You can see that at Pod, And you can also visit our home on the web, Cynite.com, for links to all our other social media, including our YouTube page, which got the entirety of Season 3 up and ready for you to watch past episodes the people we talk to, the stories we talk about, and our merch. And there's definitely going to be some Battlestar merch coming out soon. Keep an eye out for that. There's a lot to see, and you can see it all at Cyanite.com. 
we will be back in two weeks with a new episode. But until then, follow us, Kathy Ireland. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz. I saw cherry blossoms, but I missed all the auroras because I wasn't paying attention. I mean, I guess I guess when you're just so into plasma, it's not special anymore, right? You're it like, is this, special, this is just, and I've never This is just free it. plasma. It's not paying its bills. It's just <laughs> couch surfing on the earth. Right?